I'm Cody Royal, and this is the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is a panel discussion about being deliberate and features Daniel Jackson, former best and fairest with the Richmond Tigers in the Australian Football League, and Neil Potts, former high-performance coach with Scotland Rugby. This episode is sponsored by Leaders in Sport, who have a special offer for you later in the show. But for now, enjoy the conversation. Dan Jackson, welcome to the show. Thanks, Code. Thanks for having me. And Neil Potts, you're there as well. Welcome, mate. Hughes Goody, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. The Gunners have just beaten Tottenham, so um, all good vibes here. I, uh, I start off every show by telling the audience uh, why I've paired you guys together. And, and for you guys, it was an obvious one, not only knowing you both and your ideas and how you think about performance and, and development and, and resilience and values. Um, and then also you've, you've got an Edinburgh link there, which I'll let you guys explain. Uh, but this show is going to be kind of a precursor to my next book, which is about being deliberate and being intentional in all the activities we do. And I know it's something that you guys are passionate about and um, have implemented in the teams that you're working in. And uh, kind of that idea of taking control of your, your own behaviors in order to achieve our goals. Um, and Dan, I'll start with you on that because I wrote about you and uh, your career in the AFL and the club that you're at, the Richmond Tigers, and the DNA project that you guys underwent when you were there and you were a, a a large part of that and really digging into who you were as a football club and what behaviours you wanted to exhibit. And so looking back on that process, can I take us through that process a little bit and then looking back on it now that you've left the AFL and um, how do you consider that whole movement given what's happened subsequently in terms of they've won a, a premiership since you've left? Yeah, I mean, that was back in 2010 when the, the current coach, Damien Hardwick, took over and he sort of walked in and he said, look, we're going to rebuild this place and we're going to start by exactly that. We're going to build it on the right values. We're a family here, yada, yada, yada. Um, I guess, funnily enough, at that time, I probably had the, the eyes at the back of my head because I'd been a part of a dynasty beforehand, albeit I was very young at the time, that we had the values, we had the mantra, we had the things on the wall, they were mentioned here or there, but... I, uh, I hadn't seen it really mean anything. It certainly hadn't correlated to performance on field or creating anything that I thought was a good culture off it. So uh, I was probably a little bit cynical, but we went through the process in a different way um, with Dimmer and he brought in an external guy and we just, it was a lot more exploring about, okay, yeah, we've, we've come from a club with a great history and we do want to embrace that, but at the same time, what do we want to carve out? So we went through this a different process to what I imagine I think it happened the first time around. Uh, and we came out with something really simple. It was just around this idea of our, our jersey, our jumper, as we call it back at home, hadn't changed for 100, and, 100 plus years that the club had been around. And it, and it just, it represented everything that uh, the club stood for and what we wanted to stand for. So we kind of built our values around this very, very basic, simple concept. Every time you put that thing on, go out to, to play, or they're probably referred to as out to battle back then. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the things that we expect of you. Um, you know, if you go and read Legacy now, but the All Blacks kind of similar concept. When you put that on, it's not it's not a right, it's not a it's not a privilege, it's a responsibility. You carry this the burden of all this expectation and pressure to make sure that you hand that thing on a better in a better place, whether you play one game or, or 150 games. Um, and then, I mean, without going into too much detail about how that played out, sort of week by week, I guess the thing that I found most valuable was just the little small things. So one of our words was awareness. That was one of our values. Um, and it came from the fact that when we were a poor club before the coach had come, the new coach had come in, there was often a little bit of, I guess, isolation. A lot of the younger guys felt isolated. A lot of the older players probably looked after themselves a bit because we were under the pump, and that's just your natural instincts. Yeah. So this word, this core word came out around, you need to be aware of what's going on. And so it was something as simple as if your teammate's on the ground, you take the time, doesn't matter how knackered you are, to stop in a game and help pick him up. Because that little bit of, geez, he's struggling and needs a hand, then it's going to be reciprocated time and time again. And those little things will add up over time. So it wasn't just a writing a word on a wall anymore. It was something that we could generally tan- tangibly see, touch and taste. And I think that's where I started to see the difference between writing on a wall versus something that you can actually genuinely believe in in your heart. And uh, I think that's what drove, drove the performance change that ended up resulting in sort of where they are now. Yeah, totally. And, and Neil, I'll throw it over to you, and, and that was perfect, Jacko. Th- that awareness piece, 
So it exists at a team level, but then it also exists on a personal level. And Neil, you're, you know, in, in deep athletic high performance is, is your world. And so um, for you, it's about kind of creating that awareness around what you're doing and the everyday, everyday activities and even, you know, diving deeper into that in terms of the, the value system behind an individual and, and what they're trying to achieve. Um, so how do we go through that process at an individual level so that someone is aware of their behaviours and, and what they're doing and how that's subsequently affecting their performance. And I'm thinking from a corporate perspective, but there's lessons in, in what we do in, in athletics that we can take from there. Yeah, I think um, a lot of it is being honest with yourself, uh, looking at where your own strengths and weaknesses are and not being scared to admit that someone can do something better than you can or that there's something you need to work on or in some cases, there's things that you're just never going to achieve. You just don't have those attributes, no matter how hard you work on it. And yet there's other things that you can really excel at. And um, I think the people that do very well uh, tend to be good at either identifying some of those things themselves or getting help around them to identify them, whether that's from uh, a coach or uh, a colleague or um in my case, a number of times, it was quite a, quite a junior person that highlighted deficits or strengths that I wasn't fully aware of that allowed me to become better in, in my roles. And uh, I think once you do those things, it's then having the willingness to put the time and effort into to training them. And I don't think that matters whether it's a, a physical attribute or a mental attribute or a behavior in the workplace. Um, and that's how things I think how you can make a real difference and what, one of the things I find interesting um, if you ever watch the the TV show The Apprentice is how often uh, the candidates competing in the game show focus on what they think they need to show in order to go forward particularly in the early stages instead of focusing on what the aspects in the team are that they can combine to have the most successful outcome and as a group get further in the process until it gets to that real cutthroat stage, which is really, really the very end of the program. Um, and quite often I see that when I was running the department at Scottish Rugby, it was a similar thing. Guys were trying to push themselves into positions that they weren't necessarily best suited for, and yet uh, there's other people could do aspects better. And if they capitalise on that skill set, the group would be more successful as a whole. Uh, and I find it really interesting what Dan's saying um, around values being words on the wall versus behaviours. And I'm quite interested in what he, what he was saying, that at the club, there started to be reward and focus on behaviours that were seen on the pitch that wouldn't necessarily be game-winning things, but ultimately embodied the values of, of the group. Um, and I, I find that quite interesting. We're interested to hear what your thoughts are, Dan, and how that has uh, helped really helped the group go forward? Yeah, Neil, you're spot on. That's, I mean, we, especially early days, we were a young team. The coach or the club cut a lot of senior, good, talented players that they just didn't think fit the new mould. So we were kind of going to have some short-term pain before the long-term gain. So we might get smacked by 10 goals, which is a, is, is a big deficit in Aussie rules. And we would go through the meeting and, and the coaches would be very, very calm. You know, this, oh, look, you've lost your footing here or... You know, this is a missed kick, but we like what you be, like what you were trying to do. It was very, very measured when it came to those technical things. But if someone stepped outside of what the values were, so one of the other values was discipline, if there was something that was undisciplined out there, that's when they would lose their cool. And I remember one time we must have just been breaking too many of our values and we all got dragged out of the boxing ring and put through a horrific boxing session, even though you know we'd lost by 20 goals. It had nothing to do with that. It was to do with the fact that we'd got on that side, this thing that we'd all signed up for. And I think that's why, again, it really showed that they genuinely believed in it. And I think whether you're a corporate world or an individual person, if you're going to put it down on paper and write it on the wall, that's great. But it's, it is that accountability to the behaviours that make it real. I always talk about, can you see it, touch it, taste it? And you would ask the guys, you know, tell me an example of during the week, give me an example of someone who's showed awareness this week. And I remember one guy stood up and said, well, uh, I was in hospital last week. You had my Achilles surgery. You know, my family's all from interstate. And um, I just really appreciated it when the nurses told me I had so many visitors that I wasn't allowed to have any more because they just showed that you guys were so aware that I was going through a pretty rough time. Uh, so something like that, it just gives, gives genuine meaning to the word, word and 
and real value to what it is that you're trying to build. So you're spot on. It was it was really about that accountability to the behaviour more than anything else. Do you think that because um, we've all been involved in those teams where you get those words on the wall, um, and one I always felt was coaches tended to, particularly at the international level, it was it talked a lot about pride in the jersey. Uh, I'm playing for your country, but it's not necessarily the motivation for everybody. And some people's motivation may be they're there with their mates and um, they're playing for the guy beside them, or they've really achieved something for their family, or uh, there may be something financial that they're taking themselves out of a hole. It could be all sorts of reasons. And I wasn't so convinced that the reason mattered that it was for the emblem on your chest as much as you had a real driving force uh, to achieve, but you embodied what that group was about. And uh, the more you could galvanize that group around those behaviors that I suppose many people value around discipline and and sacrifice for others and working as a team, whatever the case may be, that uh, that's when your group tended to be more successful and, and most people couldn't tell you what the writing on the wall was, but they could tell you what the things looked like when you got it right or when you got it wrong. Totally. For us at the international level, when, when we brought together everyone and we went to the International Cup in Australia, we had guys literally from one side of Canada to the other. A lot of them didn't know each other, but we actually got up and part of our jersey presentation was to to identify what it actually meant. So going further than, you know, just pride in the jersey, everyone got up and explained why they had that pride to wear the jersey. And it was really funny because generally what happens, and you would have seen this, that the guys that know each other, they sit next to each other on the bus on the way to training on the first couple of days. And then once we'd had that meeting, the whole dynamic changed and everyone was sitting next to different people because now they had that um, that next level of understanding of, yeah, you know, like you said, Daniel, you know, my uh, my dad put off surgery to to raise the money to, to send me here. And, and so everyone had that new level of understanding and it created a new bond. And it's it's funny, just the, the opportunity to talk that out, what it actually means, rather than just presuming that 30 guys all want to slap their chest and say, I'm wearing the maple leaf on my jersey and, and that's going to be enough. I, I don't think that's enough. I think you need to dig a lot more into that with each individual. This is something I've been trying to tease out lately and I'm basing a bit of my master's on. Is it's, it's, it's more about connection and how do you foster an environment that is fully connected. And if you go, corporate world's a really good one to look at because the old, the stick doesn't work anymore. You can't threaten anyone. No one will work for you if you're the old school coach or boss this this generation's too sensitive for that the carrot often doesn't work as much anymore because people are more values driven they don't necessarily see the dollar signs as a reason to put up with your shit or to just do really long hours for work that they don't find meaningful but what i'm seeing now whether it's the richmond tigers uh, and the way they use the word love and care and compassion publicly about how they feel about each other philadelphia eagles the way they just seem to have this great bond out there and they're being quite philanthropic in that side of their football world and I think you hear about corporate teams, you know, Google talks about psychological safety. Ultimately, it comes down to connection because you, the one thing I think humans will always put themselves on the line for is someone they care for. And all the other stuff, I think, is secondary to that no matter what. And so, yeah, if you can, if you can create, whether it is through a jumper presentation and getting a story from a person that helps someone bond or whether it's through setting a behavior that just actually gets the action to happen, ultimately, you're all striving for the same thing, which maybe in previously was if we felt connected to the Maple Leafs badge. But I think you're right. It's, whether it's a generational shift or people are just seeing through it now, not necessarily as effective as just cutting straight through to it. How am I going to get you to love you? And therefore you'll sacrifice anything for the team or for your teammate, which ultimately helps the team. Yeah. So let's, let's dig into that a, li- a little bit more as well. So we, we know we have all the, the examples racked up on the, the corporate side and we can recite the Google stuff and the Facebook stuff. And, you know, there's probably too many books about that side now, but what about the personal side? How do we get to that same side so that we are actually matching, not, you're not matching my salary demands, you're matching my value demands at that point in time. So I'm actually taking a job that's, you know, essentially designed around the values that, uh, and behaviors that, that I want to exhibit as a person. Um, yeah, how do we as individuals go about that? It's a good question. I was, I was keen actually to hit Neil here from you when you work with an individual 
on this vase kind of stuff. Do you tend to get them to say, right, what do you want to stand for? And then let's build out a picture of what that looks like. Or do you tend to go, what is it that you do stand for? So is it the, I am strong at this and let's just really focus it. Or is it, this is what I want to go be known for and let's build it out that way. Cause I've sort of, I'm undecided either way and I've seen both sides work, but if you had, do you have an opinion on which one's best? Um, not, not really. When it comes to training people, it's, Funny, I find that um, really building that relationship first matters and much more than I ever gave it credit in probably the first three quarters of my career. Um, I'm sure if you talk to the guys, particularly if they were around when I when I started, it was, I was quite dogmatic. You know, here's the science behind it. This is what we're doing. Here we go. You'll just do it. Uh, and part of that was building a system but as I got further through it and started to appreciate that, you know, you have people have to want to be involved. They have to want to do it. And um, that the more you took time to understand them and their point of view and give them options where it was possible and explained where it wasn't. And that, that was one of the, the biggest things for me is just taking time with the people. You got much better results. Um, and that was both as a, if you're working with someone as an as an athlete and trying to get them as far down the line as possible, at the end of the day, you're there to support their success. So um, there's sometimes there's things that they don't see they could be really good at, uh, and usually it's things they don't like doing. Um, so you have to push them a little bit in that direction, but you can give them choices as to the way it's constructed because there's not one solution for anything there's a number of options um and then there's other things where they that you maybe can't see that they go you know what when i can do this i feel like i'm at the top of my game and I, i'm really at this is where i make a difference and even if i didn't get picked on the team because there was someone better i know if i'm bringing this that this is giving me my best shot and where i'll add value when it, it's useful but so it was really building that rapport and understanding. Um, and I think for a lot of coaches, irrespective of your discipline, it comes down to trust. Um, and I think sometimes that's where we end up with always looking for objective uh, answers rather than subjective some of the times because you don't necessarily trust what the person's telling you. You're asking that, you've got a little bit of doubt because of the way they've behaved. Are they just trying to get out of this? Um, are they trying to find another route? And I think if uh, you've built up that relationship and trust, then it's much easier. You can take them much further, uh, much further with it. And funnily, I, f I find exactly the same thing when I was running the department. Once I started taking time to empathize and understand the situations of the people working there and trying to do things for you, why certain things weren't happening, or why someone had made a different choice and were maybe going against the system that we'd built, that um, it was much easier to, to get down the track a lot faster. Because uh, sometimes the decisions made on the ground are based on information you don't have. Uh, and, and someone's made a good decision that goes against what we're trying to do, but it's taken us further down the track. And sometimes they've made a mistake, but if you understand why and you can move forward and move around it, again, you've got good people in your system and you, you grow from it. So that empathy piece uh, and building that trust, I find to be very important, irrespective of which sequence you did it in. Dan, for you, uh, you've spoken a lot about uh, your career and you were quite maniacal about diarising everything. And so that must have helped in terms of kind of a not only understanding yourself, but you can kind of measure yourself over time. So talk about that process in terms of how that helped you identify um, this value system for you. And, and yeah, like we talked about, what, you're, what you think you're good at, what you think you're not good at, um, all of those things. How did writing it all down and then being able to look back at, at it over time help you? Uh, I think it helps a lot. Um Having a plan uh, doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to be successful, but it gives you a point to be able to look back and review um, and understand what things worked well, what things didn't, where you made mistakes. Um, and I was pushed quite hard by Scott Johnson, 
who's um, director of rugby at Scotland, to really do this a lot in whatever detail you wanted and really review what you were doing before you got to any emotional point. So we would always review stuff before games, analyze our training before games, because afterwards we knew we'd get thrown uh, by the outcome. Um, and I was quite diligent uh, from a scientific point of view before that with um, doing training plans for athletes and things like that, being able to look back what worked, what didn't work, um, how different systems could knit together and things like that to build the process. What I found helped me the most was you could see the first principles in action. You could uh, understand the key components that really mattered and then how much flexibility there is in the system. And that opened up a whole raft of potential solutions to me, um, which can sometimes be very difficult to explain, uh, but you can see how simple everything really is and how many options there are to go through it and get outcomes. And really, it, it just helps uh, determine what you must do consistently and what other things you can work your way through and find solutions depending on uh, the circumstances and the environment you find yourself in. There's always a way to work through it and uh, effectively take, uh, if, if you're going from A to B and you're on the motorway and you hit a traffic jam, you can go off onto the A or the B roads and still get your way back on track to where you're trying to go. Um, and I find all of that very useful. Yeah, I'll jump in, I guess. I completely agree with that, taking sort of the emotion out of it. That was the, my experience that I always had the best of intentions. I saw myself as a disciplined, hardworking player. But early days, I sort of got called in by one of the development coaches who quite basically called me on it and said, well, you work hard when you want to, but I don't think you're consistent with it. Um, which we had a bit of archy-bargy back and forth until I sort of saw where he was coming from. And then we sat down, we said, okay, well, let's do an assessment. Let's Basically, I guess it was like a SWOT. What's your strength? For me, it was just my physical conditioning, capacity to outwork people. What's your weakness? Uh, generally, it was my decision-making or executing skills under pressure. And a threat for me was always, I constantly was struggling with hamstring-related issues or tendonitis. So there was this risk of injury. So from there, we said, okay, well, let's create an action plan. And one of my things was just simply every week, I'll do one extra conditioning session, one extra skill session, and um, a more rehab, an extra rehab. And I would write it down when I was going to do it and the end of the week, tick it off. So I did that for the half season when we'd started. I'd go for an extra run on my day off or I'd do boxing or weights. I'd squeeze in an extra massage or go down to the ocean and get in the water, more ice um, bath kind of things. And at the start, it was a bit of an effort. To, I realized I actually wasn't consistent that when I was training, I trained hard, but sort of notoriously, I think I would probably skip sessions because I was tired or I was feeling a bit sore. And without writing it down, there was no accountability but then after sort of 12 months, I found I didn't have to write things down anymore. My, my day off became the fitness session, the recovery session, uh, and some extra fitness work. And then I'd be doing other stuff on top. So then I added the same kind of philosophy to things like diet. I said, right, I'm going to cut out all my sugar. So instead of having a fruit juice, I'll have a veggie juice. But I would write it down every day. Did I manage to get through the day and not have any sugar? Yeah, tick it off. No, I didn't. Okay, why not? So I was much clearer and where I was actually executing on that plan. And if I was tired or I was cranky or I was hungry or distracted, it's a lot e it was a lot easier to go, no, 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 I'm not going to let the emotion override the decision because this is my accountability tool. So I think that for me, it started quite simple. And it's, I see it with kids now. We, you do a planning session with an aspiring young athlete, and I'm working with a few here. They do that easy. They know all the answers. They know what it takes. Everybody can write a plan down. The ones who make it to the elite level are the ones that execute it consistently. They don't do anything mm -hmm. exceptional. They just do the little thing again and again and again. Um, and I think when you look at any great athlete's story, there's never one huge jump in um, talent or performance gain. It's just that incremental part. And trying to get young guys to buy into that sometimes can be hard because they're looking for the silver bullet. But the ones that get it early, I think they're the ones that get their, into their careers, the crux of their careers quicker. It's one thing that strikes me is what Dan's saying. I mean, how many times do you hear the story about uh, the guy who is world-class now, but when they, they started as a kid or they were coming through, they were never the one who was always picked or uh, they had tons of failures. And it was that ability to chip away consistently and, and do what Dan's talking about, identify where they're struggling and work at it to overcome those barriers um, that allowed them to keep coming through. And then when the kids who were seen as the the prodigy, if you like, 
uh, hit hit some major barriers. Suddenly they fell off uh, the face of it, and the other one kept going through. That's that resilience piece, isn't it? How do you how do you how do you teach resilience? Like I, I do work in schools at the moment on exactly that, and the, you talk to teachers, you talk to in primary school, secondary school, collegiate level in the US, you talk to academies, and they just keep saying the same thing: the kids now just aren't as resilient as before, and the finger constantly gets pointed back to parents. Uh, if you go back to primary school and you want to talk to grade fives and sixes around sort of where, why, why or why not they're resilient, and they're the ones that probably in most, I guess, access or the parents having the most influence, we're, we're not letting kids fail anymore. We're not letting them fall over or fall out of the tree and realise that it's not that bad. We're not letting them get dropped from the team without kicking up a big stink and calling up the coach. Yeah. And if you don't have those experiences, you will not build adversity because you can't fake it. It only comes through, I've survived this before, so I can survive it again. Um, but I mean, it's a hard thing to say, oh, I haven't got kids. I imagine it's quite hard to see your kids get hurt or mentally or physically and to let them take risks. Uh, but when you're coaching athletes as well, I think it's always, we want, we, we're told we need to buoy their self-esteem. We need to make them feel good because that's how it works these days. That's what the psychs are telling us, which I think is all true. But at the same time, you've got to let them go out there and fail or they won't make it through the crucibles that every athlete, no one, no athlete has a clear career path. Uh, everyone eventually gets to a hurdle. And like you said, Neil, the ones that are able to keep chipping away at that moment are the ones that break through. And the others, we just yeah. don't, we don't read about them because no one writes a book about them. Well, I, I find it so interesting, um, all that stuff. And I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. I think you're absolutely right. You have to feel if you're going to succeed. I, I don't, I can't think of anyone in any industry that's at a high end that I've listened to or spoken to that has said anything different. That, mm. you know, it's pushing through, whether it's in business, in the military, in sport. Um, you know, those failures and pushing yourself to that point and, and then when you come to the the toughness of competition, if you like, and when it's really getting tough, truly tough, that actually you've been there before or you've done worse or you've suffered something similar and you now have figured out a way to get past it and that's how you keep going. And I wonder, while it is important, um, I think it's very important to let people feel uh, there's of course that adage win or learn and it's only from your failures that you really learn um, but then how much people are willing to spend time with the kid that has struggled or failed and say okay come on this hasn't gone right let's figure out how it's gone well or how it's gone gone badly and let's see what we need to do to get better um, and I, I've seen that Again, it's one of my big frustrations that I've witnessed in my career, if you like, being a, a coach on the sidelines when um, there's, I see relatively little time put into the second string or even third string players uh, who are in the team. Uh, you know, there's a lot of focus with the pressures of week in, week out competition of get the, the first string guys ready to play. And yet, as soon as someone gets injured or as soon as uh, you need a higher level of um, challenge and training, it's those second and third string guys, however good they are, that really raise the standard of your team or keep the team performing at a high level. And I think when you look at teams like, for example, Leinster in, in rugby or the All Blacks, or uh, you, you could take any number of sports and teams, the ones that are super successful either have had a lot of money and bought a lot of really high-end guys and cycled them through, or have done really well at building their academy and building that high level of kid underneath and maybe spend a bit more time with them. What would your thoughts be on that? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, it's, it's, it's a depth game, isn't it? Uh, it's interesting living in Europe now and seeing, I'm glad you preface that you can basically buy the team, but it's not sustainable. You always see there's a big drop off once the money stops flowing or even sometimes when the money doesn't stop flowing. I mean, Barcelona has lots of money, but La Masia or whatever, the academy clearly just ingrains in these kids what it takes to play for Barcelona. And in Australia, I remember our CEO, Brendan Gow, said to me once, he said, Jacko, what is it that AFL teams compete on? I was looking a bit stunned and he went through, he said, well, it's not money because we all have to work to a strict salary cap. It's not even talent because we all access to the same draft and trade and it's quite well restricted. He said that the only thing we can compete on is our culture because what, what the talent that we have is effectively as equal as everyone else's. The amount we pay them is the same. So how do we maximize, optimize the talent that they do have? 
Uh, and again, that like you're saying, it's not just the top few guys. They're going to play well. It's when you have that pressure. And I used to coach you to talk about it all the time. The guy below who's just kicking the door down to get his opportunity, that's what makes a great team over a long period of time because you're always going to have, the, as a team, the setbacks of injuries and stuff like that. But I think it also just drives internal competition, um, which, I, again, I don't think you get a great team without that there. So, no, I completely agree. Um, if you don't have depth, you're not getting anywhere and you just can't shortcut that other than focusing on everyone individually. Even if you've got a list of 40 in AFL, that just means you have to have 40 strong relationships because if you only concentrate on the top 10 or 15, you're eventually, I think, going to get caught out. Well, there was a really good example. I wrote about Stoke City in, in the book and, funnily enough, after I did that, I put the moz on them and, and they got relegated. Um, but what was really interesting was Peter Coates, the chairman, came out and wrote a letter to the fans afterwards talking about these two things put together where he essentially am- admitted to the fan base that they had fallen out um, with their their culture and their direction in that what they had been very good at doing over a period of time was acquiring um, players from that had played really well at other clubs that were maybe too old. Maybe they got to 28 or 29 and their athletic prime had passed them. Uh, Stoke would go and grab them. They put them in this environment where they could still succeed into their 30s and they'd done that quite well and it was a difficult place to play and all these different things. And then they panicked and they started splashing the cash, which was never their thing. And they outlaid huge sums of money for the wrong players. They stuck with Mark Hughes as a coach, maybe a little bit too long. And so Peter Coates writes this letter and basically apologises for uh, bailing out on that that cultural aspect like you were talking about there, Jacko, um, which ultimately, you know, if you get if you do it on the wrong year, uh, you're relegated. Yes, there's a risk and reward thing. If you do it in the right year, you're Leicester City. But um, it was really interesting that his response to that was to apologise for them kind of leaving the the culture that they had established and that had made them successful for a decade in the Premier League when they were under-resourced. Mm. I think that's, and that's the same with anyone's behaviour. Like, we used to talk about don't ride the roller coaster. When things are going well, don't get so far ahead of yourself that you stop doing what makes you great. Just like when things are going poorly... Don't write yourself off. Like if you're an elite performer, you're there for a reason. It's always that same consistent approach. What am I doing well? What do I need to improve on? And how am I going to go about changing it? And that's underpinned by about, I think what we started off talking about is, okay, what do I stand for as an athlete or uh, as a performer in general? And it's just, it comes back to that consistency approach. But I think it's a lot easier than people realize to get ahead of yourself. Even look, talk about weight loss. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a nutritionist, but you watch people and they, they yo-yo because they get comfortable. They've done really hard work to, to finally get to where they want with their weight. And what do they do? They celebrate. And then that celebration leads them back down that same path of cravings and sugar and whatever else. Um, workload, you, you, get a, you get a bonus. You're probably more inclined after that to take the foot off the accelerator. Why? Because, well, you've just earned that. So being aware of when you're going well sometimes is the hardest thing to do, but it's really, really important if you want to have consistency for a long period, I think. I love that. So let, let's, let's talk tactics on that because... Again, the theme of this show is is about being deliberate, and this this is exactly what it's about. How how do we catch ourselves and put programs in place around ourselves, where it's us as an individual that's training for a marathon, trying to lose weight, whatever it may be, and us as as teams in terms of what we're trying to achieve, win the championship, get that new contract at work, onboard a new client, whatever it is. Once we've got the awareness, how do we put the programs in place from a tactical perspective so that we can catch ourselves when we, yeah, we think we deserve a, a, a reward so we go and eat a chocolate chip muffin and blow the whole diet? Uh, how do we catch ourselves and go, no, no, this isn't actually what I'm after. I want to keep going with this. So tactically, like what are the things that people can actually implement in their, their day-to-day lives? Because this is the world that you guys live in. So I'd love your perspectives on this. Well, I'm happy to talk about me as an individual and then maybe um, Neil would probably, I'd love to hear how you go about actually working with others to, to uh, empower them to do it. I think that's a greater challenge because if you're looking after <laughs> yourself, it's probably the easy thing. But I mean, I'm training for a marathon at the moment. I want to run sub three hours. My quickest is a 3.19. So I've got to take off 20. I'd like to take off 25 minutes. It's a big jump, but I know it's doable, but only if I tick all the boxes. And so I'm sitting in my room at the moment above my bed, I have a whiteboard that has my marathon time on it, and then it goes, okay, if I want to run a 255 marathon, this is what my half time is, 10K, 5K, 3K, 2K, 1K, 800 meters. And I've gone through throughout the year, and I've ticked them off. Every time I've got my marker time, it gets ticked off and, and, and crossed out for that little bit of reward. 
But again, that's kind of still just the plan on the paper as I spoke about before. The thing that really enables me to do it is the commitment that I've made that, okay, I will run, it was four times a week for a period of six months. Now I've brought it down to three and up the intensity. I make sure that I do this certain warm-up routine every single time I run this much foam rollering. So for me, it's been about, okay, well, this is what I want to achieve. But more importantly, this is how I'm going to go and do it. And then coming back to just how do I keep myself accountable? Well, for me, it is, it's literally box checking because I just get one of those people that if I, if I let myself down by not crossing it off or doing it, I feel guilty. And so it, it just doesn't sit well with me. So that's me as an individual. I just, I'm very process-oriented and, and, and driven. But again, I think it's probably easier because I know after 11 years of being a professional athlete what works for me. But I'd be fascinated to be able to hear, hear how you do it because everyone's different and you would have to work it differently, I imagine, with every different personality type to sort of get the same results. Um, I think the uh, the fundamental thing is the next smallest step. So what's usually the most difficult for people is getting started. And after that, it's the fear of how hard it's going to be. Um, and if you can get them over those hurdles, I've yet to find someone who, even if they um, hated what they were doing uh, from a physical perspective, because um, surprisingly, you, you guys don't know this, not every athlete enjoys the physical aspects of being an athlete or the training <laughs> that goes with it. <laughs> so they usually fell in love with it for the, the camaraderie or the competition, and then everything else is now a burden. So, um, But I've yet to find one that once they start making progress or see the benefits that they don't want more. Um, and I think a lot of the time that comes from just the next, sensible step, the, the next smallest step, the next easiest thing to pick off and you're always moving forward. Uh, certainly from a, a physical perspective, I think one of the big mistakes people make is, uh, right, you've got to go hard at it, you've got to bust yourself, you've got to leave everything lying out there. And you don't, uh, it's surprising how relatively easy a lot of the uh, training you need to do to actually continually make progress and take those next steps. And of course, there'll be days that you are really pushing yourself and your limits. Um, but that's maybe once a month or once every six weeks to find out where you're at. And other than that, everything else is around 75, 80% just building your way through it. So there's a, I think that's a big part of it. And, and once people start making those gains, it's a lot easier. How you then go about it is picking things you enjoy. So the, there's usually several ways you can uh, make progress. There's se seven different methodologies you could apply. And there's not necessarily one best one. There's a few that will work better for you in your circumstances than others. Um, but there's no question that uh, if you can commit to it and do it consistently, get those little periods where you really challenge yourself to take another step, like we've talked about already, that then that's how you're going to be successful over a longer period of time. Um, so finding the ones that you enjoy or like a little bit better, and I find that works well when you've got athletes and there's several ways of doing things. I've given up spending three or four days uh, tearing my hair out, trying to find the optimum and just starting to go, you know what, there's three ways I can do this. There's the three ways. Guys, you you pick which one you, you'd like to do most. Uh, and then, then you get much better investment in it and they, they just keep moving forward. It's incredible how often that consistency message comes up and, and has even within this podcast. We could be talking about something completely disparate, but that consistency, the day-by-day -day effort is what it keeps coming back to. And there's an anecdote that I always bring up in, in this situation when I'm explaining it either in a, a corporate setting, in a, in a speech, or even to my team is – this uh, story of Jerry Seinfeld where he would have the calendar up and, and he was forcing himself to write jokes every day. They could be the worst joke in the world. It could work or not work. But what he wanted to see was the continuation of the crosses, the big red X's on his calendar. And so breaking them became the behavior that he, he didn't want because he didn't want to have to start again. Um, and I think when you can get into that mindset, it's actually really powerful. And like we talked about there with, with you, Neil, once, once you start to see the gains, 
that's actually that becomes kind of the addiction. You're like, well, I can't break it, and mm. and it's the keep going, and you don't want that feeling of starting again, um, because as we just talked about, starting is is one of the hardest parts. Um, but that consistency, whether it's it, it could be everything, and this is why I think it's 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 an interesting topic to to look at in a book is um, even at a cultural level that we don't want to have to start this again. And so we want to keep churning on the behaviors that we've agreed upon will get us to our goals um, because we don't, we want to avoid having to go back to the start and start training for a marathon again, because that's super painful, as you know, Jacko. Yeah. Well, mate, uh, uh, one thing that I keep pushing, I think if I was writing a book on being deliberate, the, the number one, the first chapter, the last chapter, and every chapter in between would be about routine. They're like humans are such... We're addicted to routine. It's how our brain is wired. We get rewarded. You're a smoker. It's the routine of getting the nicotine. Okay, it's it's, it's the chemical fix that you're getting. But generally, something occurs. You have a cigarette. Uh, you get that hit. You go around. Some people wake up in the morning. They have to have their coffee. Some people wake up in the morning. They check their phone. Other people wake up in the morning and they meditate. Then they plan their day. Why do people sit in the same seats when they go into a, into a team lecture? Well, this is where you've always sat before. I don't want to have to think about it. Um, but Barack Obama talking about always wearing grey or blue suits, one less decision I have to make. So I think uh, people who work out what it is they want to do and, and, and why they want to do it, which is stuff we've been talking about, but ultimately coming down to, okay, well, this is how I'll do it every single day and just going at it and going at it. So there is no question. Um, I know when I'm at my best, it's get up, meditate in the morning. Why? Because I, otherwise I, might, I start my day clouded. But I also I'm not I, I'm not great at keeping it consistent. So if I'm not consistent, then I have to deal with whether it might be anxiety during the day, or I might get frustrated with people more uh, readily. But the things that I've always um, been successful around have come back to okay, what's the routine? So my day off was always exactly the same thing before a game. You could tell me I could tell you the night before a game every uh, week I'd be doing the exact same thing down at the, the ocean, doing my recovery, eating at the same restaurant. Not because it was superstitious, just because I knew that if I ticked those boxes, it led to success previously, so it would go again and again. And I think high performers get that, but people in just the day-to-day world, they, they allow their routines to dictate their, where they're going rather than dictating their routines to take them where they need to go. Yeah, absolutely. The, the thing that I think we all need to understand is that we're wired that way. So the brain is, is specifically designed to take shortcuts. Um, and it's an evolutionary trait that we can't avoid. And so, like you said, going and sitting in the same spot or, um, you know, the example that, that I like to talk about is there's a flight of stairs and an escalator and you watch people at the airport and they just gravitate towards the escalator. And yes, it's an easier option, but, you, you know, talking of like being deliberate and being intentional about things, if you're on a health kick, you actually divert yourself towards the stairs and go, you know what, that extra flight of stairs, like your extra training session, Jacko, that you undertook, that's a small thing that I can do. Um, yeah, I think one of the, the key pieces that we all need to be aware of is that we're actually designed to take shortcuts. And so you have to catch yourself in the act of taking those shortcuts um, to really make it work. Yeah, I think the awareness is important and and equally, sometimes those shortcuts can add a lot of value as well. You know, you can you can also get caught in being so dogmatic about uh, the way you've done things that you just keep going the same way. Um, I mean, how, how often do you see that within sport or organisations as well, where they just keep doing something and you know, someone else comes in and asks the question. So, well, you know, this, this is our our approach. This is the way we do things. And you're going, well, hold on. If you took out those five steps and did it this way instead, you might be able to shortcut things and get further ahead. And the, I think there's a difference between shortcuts that are detracting from your goal and shortcuts that are actually going to add value and get you there faster and, and make you more competitive uh, and a, or a leaner approach, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on because we've had this chat before, Codes, around teams or coaches need to make sure that they're innovating because innovation is what enables you to stay ahead of the pack. But also coaches who change things too much confuse their players and they don't know what you stand for. So a great team, you know exactly how they're going to play and they do it so well that no one else can beat them at it. That's what their strength is. But if they continue just to do that forever, eventually they get overtaken. So that finding that balance between changing behaviours but being consistent with behaviours I think is a really hard one. I really like your just basic example there, Neil, of 
maybe it's someone from the outside, but maybe it's even yourselves. Ask yourself three, if you can't answer the question why within three whys. So why do I do it? Oh, this is why. Yeah, but why do you do it? If you're talking yourself into a dead end and the answer ends up being, well, that's just what we've always done. I think that's when you probably need to be reviewing that behavior. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, the great example there is, and I'm, I'm cautious of always talking about these guys, but the Patriots are the one that have this down to a T where there was a couple of years there where they would essentially tell you what they were going to do and they would out-execute you anyway. And, you know, you look at their history through the the kind of Belichick years and, and how they've built their, particularly their offense, has been quite deliberately different. And it got to a point where it was different week to week. And it was just through kind of all these things that we've been talking about layered on top of each other over and over and over again. And when they did change it, it wasn't confusing because it was changed within a framework um, that was consistent. And, you know, the, the catchphrase that you hear regularly is do your job. And so if this is my job, block left on this one, block right on that one. It's very simple. And, and so they've kind of mastered that art of changing things but keeping their players at a high-performing level. But um, yeah, you're right. It is a bit of a knife's edge sometimes. But Neil, one of the things that um, that you and I have talked about, and I love this story about you, you guys completely reformatted your training and how you trained to allow your your coaches to spend more time with the players, um, and you you shot up the the rankings in the rugby world. So I'd love if you could share that story quickly with everyone listening. Sure, it's funny that one came up. Uh the last few weeks in Germany as well over dinner and two people were talking about it not realising that it was us in the room so I ended up having to tell it again. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is going back a few years now when I was at uh, Edinburgh with Andy Robinson and um, Andy had come into the team tail end of October in his first year. So the season starts in September. We're already six or seven games in it not doing too well. He'd identified what we, we needed to improve, largely defence, really worked on it. And it goes back to that message about being consistent. And the team did pretty well. So we'd, we'd started, I think, ninth or 10th, uh, finished ninth or 10th the previous season. By the end of that first season, we were up to fourth with no real uh, changes in personnel. Um, and then the, the second year, we were looking at how do we make more of a difference, have more of an impact or do things differently. And uh, Edinburgh was relatively light on budget compared to the big competitors. We hadn't changed much personnel um, and staffing wise, uh, there was head coach, assistant coach, two SMCs and two physios. That was it for a team of 40 odd uh, players. So it was pretty light compared to the today's standards. But we sat and thought about it and asked the question, well, if if you're going to get ahead, what can you do that other people aren't doing? And one of the things we thought about was we're not struggled because the players don't have enough time. It's because of the way the coaches spend their time. Uh, And looking at the training session, uh, having come from more an individual sport background, I couldn't understand uh, why everybody was out on the pitch for all of the same sessions. And we talked about it quite a bit and uh, came to the conclusion that we were just doing what everybody was doing in terms of training structure. This was what you always did in rugby in terms of our our weekly training structure. And when I asked Andy about it, he recognized that he really only had the players as 15 against 15 uh, on the pitch for three 15 to 20 minute slots a week and everything else uh, with small units or um, skills work or whatever the case may be. So from that, what we did was we identified the 30-minute uh, windows each day where the whole team had to be together uh, for training, and then everything else was flexible. Um, and when I say flexible, I don't mean you could come and do whatever you wanted. It was programmed, but it was done in a way that uh, individuals could go to different types of sessions so that they focused on what they needed to do uh, to be a better player um, and really address the things that were holding them back. So you would do more uh, defensive sessions if you were struggling with defense, or you would do more gym sessions if you really had to improve 
on your, your strength work, or you'd spend more time with the physio if you had rehab issues. But the part of the idea was to get away from people doing extras as well. Why do you need to spend extra time above and beyond what everyone else is doing where you're just getting tired and then you struggle to maintain that over a period of time when we could shift the balances in your week? Uh, and out of that, we finished uh, second in the second year and had, uh, at the time, it was the second highest win streak, which we missed by one, I believe, uh, at the time in the league. So it really took a team that was struggling and accelerated us through um, towards the top end of the league the following year, and he went up to, uh, to coach Scotland. Uh, but it was a real credit to him as a coach uh, to to be willing to change um, his style and, and some of the things he was doing and take that gamble to take the team forward on an innovation that basically cost nothing but was changing the way we did things. And it's incredible to, to think about what was removed was a, a limiting belief in that this is the way that rugby's always been done. This is the way a training session's always been. And once you remove that and, and even change the perspective, let's look at it from a coaching perspective rather than from a player's perspective, that's an innovation as well. And, and that's the other thing, I, I guess. It doesn't need to be this complete, absolute, game-changing new idea that comes into it. It can be a new set of eyes. You know, you coming from an individual sport going, well, why do we do it like this? Because where I'm from, we actually, we did it like this. And that can be refreshing and can also cause, you know, innovation that can rapidly accelerate uh, performance as well. Um, what about you, Jacko? How, how did you, you spent 10 years in the league and you kind of ran into this um, newer school, uh, more spots, science-driven side of training. Did you witness any changes in, in how you guys were trained over your decade in the league? Well, I mean, listening to, to Neil there, I wish I was playing for his team. Just because I, the thing I love as a player about that is that, okay, coaches do need to coach. That's their job. Strength and conditioning guys, they've got an expertise. But I had an experience where it just became too controlled. You know, I've been playing for 10 or 11 years and I'm being treated the same as a guy who's been in the system one or two years, which uh, over time it does become stale, but also you're, just, you're completely different. That's exactly what Neil said. Like, why are you all doing the same thing? I don't need to train as much as a 28-year-old. Uh, or I can't train as much as I could when I was 18, so let's not expect it. And it's not, it wasn't as clear-cut as that, but allowing an athlete to have autonomy or creating the ability to have some autonomy within a system, I think is the best way to have a system because 44 athletes are not going to be exactly the same. So you can't just go, this is our high-performance program. That it's basically these are our high-performance programs that tie into the overriding philosophy of a program. Um, so that that was... I loved hearing that because that was the great the experience that I had. And I know when after I left Richmond, they made some, some more, not structural changes, but maybe more philosophical to be allow guys to have a bit more say about what it is they needed or wanted uh, to do. And for the feedback I've got from my old teammates is it just completely changed, changed their engagement levels with, um, especially in particular, I think, guest strength, strength and conditioning because Neil hit the nail on the head earlier. Most elite athletes don't actually enjoy that part, but they just understand that they have to do it. But if you look at all the motivational stuff, you look at Dietschy and, and why we do what we do, uh, I think one of the three core things, one of them is autonomy, competency, and relatedness. Um, autonomy, I think for me as a senior athlete, was the most important. As a young athlete, it's probably that um, competence or the relatedness. Do I feel comfortable that I can actually go and achieve this? So as a coach with a young person, you probably do need to ha hold their hand a bit and pump them up with those little wins that we chatted about before. But if, yeah, not having understanding that that's not going to work for everyone, I think, can then be your downfall because if you disengage guys because they just fear the repetition and the boredom. And, and that's a big part of it as you get older as an athlete. Every day is literally the same. You, two o'clock on a, a Tuesday afternoon, I'd be doing Pilates. Thursday, 10 a.m., I would be sitting in a meeting. And so you need to kind of innovate just to keep guys excited. I think the best way to keep them excited is empower them to take control of what they need to do. Yeah, there's, there's a couple bits I could add, add to that for you from, from what we did and how it evolved over time. Um, at one extreme in that period with, with Andy, he would have players who were internationals, just going to Dan's point, who were coming to the end of their career and struggling, couldn't, as the injuries and things build up and uh, mileage on the clock as such, you just you just can't do everything and recover from it. And certainly as you get into, any of you that have reached your mid-late 30s will know that... Um, it takes a little bit longer to get over everything and uh, 
to go again. So he he went as far as he had players that would uh, only do their kicking practice and do the captain's run and play, and they'd do nothing else in the week some weeks to allow them to to recover to be able to play at their best. Um, he would have have other guys that would only do the team aspects of of training uh, and then come and play uh, because they needed to recover from certain things. He had one player, we had one player who was a a good international, over 50 caps for his country, who because his big limiting factor was his strength and conditioning, he just did his strength and conditioning, captain's run played on a number of weeks through the season and played some of the best games he had because he was relatively fresh. And then in taking, taking those ideas a little further, uh, one of the things I still struggle to understand um, and, and we've played around with quite a bit is that um, I feel that all the, the sort of sub-disciplines are somewhat siloed. You know, you've got your, your coaching sessions that everybody will go and do and there's maybe management nodes. You've then got your strength and conditioning and you've got your, your physio, etc. But um, people don't seem to give a lot of uh, consideration as, you know, coming from a sports science point of view, um, that there's a stimulus from the sport. Um, and what is that stimulus and what are you getting out of it? Uh, and then how do you augment it with your other activities? Um, so, for example, if you are... Um, a back in rugby, typically speaking, the backs want to do a lot of speed work because they like to feel that they're fast going into games. Uh, and the forwards are the ones that you'd see as more of the strength guys, if you like. But when you look at things like their GPS information, the backs will do 40 or 50 sprints a week in the natural course of their training. So unless they have a um, technical deficit that you need to change, why do they need to do more sprints over 40 or 50 meters with the S&C team? There's, surely there's other things they could be spending their time doing that would add value to their performance. In contrast, the forwards, because they do a lot of driving type work, um, what we found was they could go 20 days between gym sessions and still maintain all their strength attributes because they're getting that through the course of their, their normal rugby training. Um, so you can take them out of some of these supplementary activities and focus on other things to make sure your performance is kept to a high level uh, as, as you understand what's important. And furthermore, you can combine sessions. So we would do things like have a line-out session uh, that we would have uh, the jumpers would go and do priming work for jumping, the lifters priming work for lifting. They'd go and do their line-out session and then they'd come back and they'd, they'd finish off the gym work that worked around those attributes. So jumps were part of your gym work, if you like, and lifts were part of your gym work. And then you'd work on the other side of things in the gym. Uh, so you could sort of merge two or three disciplines to get the most you needed out of people without just adding more and more work. Yeah, that that whole customised journey thing, I think is is super interesting from a, an athletic perspective, but then also you know, kind of tying these ideas together with, with the business world again, where we, we don't have that, like, uh, don't get it wrong. The work from home thing that, that we've got going at the moment, that's not a customized journey. Of course, everyone wants to work from their apartment, um, and be able to slide out of bed 10 minutes before they, they get to work. Um, that's not a customized journey for anyone. Really where it is, is tying all these, these ideas together where we've identified what, the best traits and the most the traits that are going to lead to the, the largest competitive advantage from each person is, and we set them up for success to utilize those skills more often. So I think in the corporate world in particular, we're still stuck on that everyone gets to work at, at nine and we all slug it away until five. And if you're away from your desk for half an hour, it means you're not working. That's not a customized journey at all. And it's, it's not setting certain people up for success. It's just ticking a box. And um, I, I love all of these ideas. And I think in terms of putting our teams together and on an individual level, I'd like to see us move closer towards this customized journey. And there are ways to do it that still subscribe to the culture and the values and making money and the things that we need to do. Um, 
from a, a business perspective to, to be successful. But um, we're running a little bit short on time, lads. Uh, I want to wrap things up here. But first of all, the way we finish every episode, I want to know what's hot in your world right now, whether it's a book, it could be Hot Wheels cars, the history of tacos, it doesn't matter what it is. So Jacko, I'll start with you. What are you kind of mentally and intellectually obsessed with at the moment in your world? But I've just signed up to go do Everest Base Camp with my best mate over just after New Year's, which I know is going to be very, very cold. But when I did Kilimanjaro, the altitude nearly killed me. So I'm obsessed with how the hell I'm going to condition myself in London and Edinburgh <laughs> to make sure I don't suffer through that again, because that was a horrible experience. So if anyone has any ideas, uh, I am all open because I'm desperate, man. I'm, the, the weeks are ticking by. <laughs> Good luck with that. I'm, I'm looking forward to the, uh, the Instagram stories from you from there, mate. <laughs> uh, Potsy, what about you, mate? Um, sadly, uh, it's more academic. In the, in the, I'm really obsessed with how teams are built, successful teams are built, and negotiating of all things. I was uh, lucky that a year or so ago I got put in a, a negotiation course run by ex-FBI ne- hostage negotiators, and since that, then it's completely changed. Uh, my views and outlooks of how people communicate and how you can uh, negotiate your way through things and get people to to do what you need them to do or to at least understand them to get the outcome that you need. So as sad as it is, those are those are the things that are really soaking up my time at the minute. That's actually fascinating. So what? Uh, how are you doing that? Is there a book? Is it a like how do how do I learn to negotiate like a an FBI agent? Well. There's actually the, the best book is um, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, who um, was is his it's his company that ran the course, um, but the principles in it are very simple. It's like a lot of things that are very very good. The principles are simple, but executing it is very difficult. So it's a lot of practice uh, on simple things. But uh, that, that's a great starting point, and he's got a load of stuff all over YouTube and the internet if anyone wanted to look at it, that uh, you could pick up a lot of his ideas and underpinnings of things. Love it. That's fascinating and right down my alley too. I will definitely check that out. Um, Final promos, lads. Where can people find you? Um, How can they get in touch with you if they want? We'll start with you, Dan. How can people look you up? Uh, don't know if I'm in the phone book anymore because a bit of a nomad, but uh, online, Dan Jackson 23 for any social media or my website is foundationpf.com, which is my company, Foundation Performance. So anyone wants to get in touch, more importantly, anyone wants to ever have a beer and they're in London or Edinburgh, I am always willing to talk performance. And check out your podcast as well. It's it's great. There's um, a bunch of really interesting conversations about similar stuff to this with uh, high performers from all different types of categories. Um, I particularly enjoyed the one with one of your old teammates, Alex Rance. So anyone that's interested in continuing to hear Dan talk about any of this stuff, uh, it's the Foundation Performance Podcast. Is that what it's called? Foundations of performance. How remiss of me not to mention that. But I, since starting this Masters, I've been inundated with work and haven't released. I've got a few in the can that need to come out in the next little while. But yeah, uh, I will be looking to do more of those uh, going forward. So good reminder. No, absolutely. It's a good little show there, mate. And uh, Neil, where can people get in touch with you and find uh, your work? Much like Dan, a bit of a, a nomad. Um, you can. I'm on... Twitter at Neil Potts, that's N-E-I-L-L-P-O-T-T-S. Um, you can also get me on LinkedIn or email me at neil.potts at redteamperformance.com. That's not the email address I have, mate, so you've been hiding that one from me. Is that your, is that your A, yeah, that, that, your that's a email that's address? Yeah, secret one. Yeah, yeah. What's that? You've been hiding that one from me. I, I must be on the B list. No, no, you're on the A-list. You've got the personal one. Oh, okay. Brilliant. I like that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Fellas, absolutely fantastic to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Um, Full of absolute gold. I'm sure listeners are going to love it. And, um, yeah, thanks for uh, taking your time out of your day. It's late at night, so I'll I'll leave you guys to your families. But um, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Goody. Really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. At this stage of the show... Most podcasts will ask you to go and leave them a five-star rating, but I'd rather you go and check out Leaders in Sport. I've got an exclusive offer for you to claim one of 100 free trials of their online membership, 
with unlimited access for a month. The Leaders Performance Institute gives you members-only access to their entire catalogue of content, which includes contributions from many of the guests you've heard on this podcast. As a member, you'll get full access to daily articles, deep-dive performance reports, industry trends, and event videos. Plus, I'll be writing a monthly column throughout 2019. There's only 100 free trials, so jump on this now before they run out. Visit leadersinsport.com forward slash Cody to claim your free membership for the month. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.